go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll begin. Lord, we thank you. Uh, you're God that uh, is one who is a great God, and even in the midst of our suffering, it serves a purpose. Uh, it serves a purpose beyond what we can even imagine uh, in some cases, and uh, you may have purposes that uh, we will never know uh, until glory. So we pray that uh, as we look at this book, uh, much uh, where Paul has to defend himself, may we appreciate uh, what we can learn from it, and this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the book 2 Corinthians tonight, and uh, this is a book that I'm excited about going through because uh, it forced me to go through it. Uh, I went through this book in uh, grad school. We had to do it and write it out in Greek uh, and translate it and do all of that, so I became pretty familiar with some of the different language of it. Uh, I have never, as far as I know, preached through this book. I preach through 1 Corinthians a lot. I feel sorry for books in the New Testament that have two and three behind them, because typically we do the first one, you're like, oh, that's great, okay, well, we'll come back to the second one later, and then you don't come back to the second one later, uh, because you have other things that uh, you're there, and so you you don't cover it because you feel like if I come back to 2 Corinthians, and you know, I've already done 1 Corinthians, I come back to 2 Corinthians, I've got to redo part of 1 Corinthians, or people understand 2 Corinthians. I think that's part of why pastors don't do a lot of uh, the books like that, 2 Peter and others like that, that don't get as much play as many others do. But uh, this is a book that, uh, to me, is one, it's worth it to mine some of the gems that are in this book, okay? Even if you can't figure out, and hopefully tonight after we're done, you can figure out what's going on in 2 Corinthians, uh, there are some passages of Scripture that you just read through and you're like, oh, you know, that's where this is from. Okay, oh, oh, and that one, yes, okay, that's a good one to remember, and so there's a lot in 2 Corinthians as we go through that you're going to go, okay, yeah, I've heard this before, uh, recognize this, um, and forgot where it was at, or I didn't understand the context of what it was in. So some of the basic information, we'll get into the, the meat of uh, the matter here in about five, ten minutes. But uh, first of all, I think we understand that uh, we're going to go here for a while. Uh-oh. There we go. Somehow it reversed uh, the order here. Uh, this is a book written by Paul. We'll have this until we get to Hebrews, and then it gets controversial, whether or not he wrote that or not. But uh, as we go through the New Testament here, we're looking at these letters written by Paul. And this letter is written uh, about a time uh, soon after the first letter, uh, probably a couple of months, uh, is what most people judge by what's written in this book uh, and uh, describing some of the activities that had gone on recently. Uh, for Paul, he was in Ephesus. He was eager to hear how things had gone in Corinth. Uh, I think he was eager to see how the letter was received, how they responded to it. Uh, so he sent Titus to go and kind of investigate what was going on and just find out what was going on. And, and in fact, you find in Second Corinthians that he is so anxious to find out what's going on that he kind of takes a roundabout route. He goes up through Troas and then goes into Macedonia. I'm going to reverse for you. He's in Ephesus. He goes up to Troas. He crosses over to Europe, goes through Macedonia, and he's going to come down to Corinth. 
Uh, he could have just sailed straight across, but he does this roundabout route and he finds Titus in Macedonia and gets a report uh, of what had happened. And this letter is a response to what he heard from Titus as far as some of the things that have been taken care of and some of the things that are still stirring. And for him, he writes this uh, as a response to what he had heard. It's about 55, 56. Uh, you'll find both of these letters generally dated in that time period when you look at most books, uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This uh, letter is a little bit easier to give a theme to. As we said, 1 Corinthians is businesslike. I mean, he, he's answering reports that he's heard, and then he answers questions that he's gotten. And he does all of that, and then he closes out the letter. And so there's not really any specific theme other than the Apostle Paul is concerned about the unity of the church. Too many people with a lot of pride that are trying to divide up things. This one is a little bit easier to find a message for because it seemingly comes up time and time again that the theme of the book is this. It seems to be a defense of genuine gospel ministry. When a person is sold out for Christ, they're doing the things that he has called them to do, and they're preaching the word that God has sent, uh, and they're doing this faithfully. Uh, there is uh, an ability to defend oneself. And we'll find that the Apostle Paul is being attacked. And, and so you got that note there, it's a defense of the gospel ministry, and let's just go to the contents of the letter because it'll give you an overview. Paul writes this letter for multiple reasons. He commends the church for their actions, okay? There's going to be some things where he just says, you did, you did well here, and you've done well here, and, and continue to do these things. So it's obvious that Titus goes there, and there's a response, and there's a moving, there's a repentance that takes place, and some sorrow that takes place over failure to do what they should be doing. But secondly, and let me turn off this other screen. I didn't realize it was still on. Um, because I don't want this to distract. But the second thing that you have here okay. the second thing that happens here is this. He is ministry, he commends his ministry to a minority group in the church that are questioning who he is. Many parts of the letter are answers to some of their accusations and chapters 10 through 13 is a complete defense. In fact, it gets to the point where people actually and looking at it go, it sounds like it's a different letter completely. You know, the tone kind of good and happy until you get to chapter 9 and all of a sudden chapter 10, it's just like, okay, I'm going to go on the attack. And it's, it's, you know, people are just like, you know, it sounds like he suddenly changed. There's a, no break, no indicator that this is going to happen, but it goes on for the next three, uh, four chapters. And so some have just seen this, but what Paul is doing is he's just coming down to the fact that he's making mention, he's defending his ministry, and he finally goes, listen, I need to set some people straight. That my ministry, this is talking about the Apostle Paul, that my ministry is apostolic, it is commanded by the Lord what I'm doing and some people may question the fact that because of an apostle, life is easy, and he goes through and lays out, no, it's a whole lot more difficult. 
You think that this is a position of power and authority that I enjoy doing. And he goes, it's a miserable uh, existence sometimes doing this. And so the last three to four chapters is just very strong language, but some very emotional and uh, really strong in the details of it. Now, the introduction... Okay, we could skip over the introduction and just say it's introductory to material and it's writing to the church at Corinth and grace be to you from, and peace from God our Father. But verse 3, I, I'd be remiss in not stopping here because this is a passage I use quite often in describing, well, the privileges of having bad things happen. Look at verse two, 3, it says this. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves were comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation or our comfort also abounded by Christ." And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And then verse 7, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that ye are partakers of the sufferings, and also you shall be of the consolations. Now, what two words did you see repeatedly throughout that? Comfort, consolation, okay, in our translation. What the Apostle Paul says, blessed be the God and Father who takes care of us in our difficulties, which allows us, when others have difficulties similar to us, we can go through and be a blessing to them with the comfort that we receive from God, we can comfort them with those things and be a blessing to them and give them consolation or ease in a situation that might be overwhelming. People might sing the old song, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And it goes, nobody knows what Jesus. And the answer is, Jesus knows all your suffering, but we oftentimes forget that most of uh, the people around you have gone through something similar. And what's the most uh, blessed thing they can do for you is to direct you to Scripture or direct you to God and say, here's what he did in my situation, and that same God is working in your situation, and be able to do that. So right from the start, the introduction kind of gets run over in 2 Corinthians because it's not really, it's just introduction, but you're able to comfort people with the comfort wherewith you are comforted, okay? Um, And you're able to do this, you go through bad times, and then you see certain things that God does, certain things that you learn, and this is a privilege, okay? I put it that way, that it is a privilege or a blessing, okay, to suffer, and learn how to go through this for the sake of other individuals. Okay, God gives us suffering, and as we'll see in this book, he gives us suffering sometimes uh, for us to learn certain things, to teach us certain things, but just to be a testimony sometimes to other people. And so there is a privilege, an opportunity 
that God puts in our life and does this. And so uh, as you think through that, I've gone back to this quite often and stated this to people. You're going through this, and you're able to comfort where with the comfort wherein you were comforted. Okay. So good passage there. So don't want to skip over just the introduction and just say it's introductory because there's some meaty stuff there. You go to chapters 1 through 2, basically, Paul gives a testimony about his relationship with the church at Corinth. Uh, He's just kind of laying out that uh, the things that had gone on, and he acknowledges that the Lord has done certain things, and that he has had a part in their ministry. He's got affection for them, and he talks about some of the care that had gone on the church. He stresses he has a genuine concern for the church. He's constantly anxious, okay, and this is a good anxiety, not the one that, you know, makes up stuff, but he's anxious in the sense that he is concerned and bringing them to God. Uh, This is why he was not able to remain in Ephesus, but he was coming to them. He was joyful over the way that the church had worked at restoring a sinful brother, You see this in verse uh, number 5 of chapter 2. He's talking about this letter that, uh, or the the previous thing that he had sent. Verse 3, I wrote the same unto you, when I come, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. And if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may be overcharged of you all, sufficient to such as the or such a man is the punishment which is inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought to forgive him, comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with much sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love towards him. Okay, you say, what happened? Remember you had the guy back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Most people indicate that this is what it is that is uh, living in sin, immorality, living with his stepmother, and that's what he's doing, and he's a shock to the community. And Paul says, you need to drop this person from membership. But it seems like in this time, this individual has been restored, and the Apostle Paul says, you did well in restoring him, and what you need to do in helping him grow uh, back in a relationship with the Lord is to reflect the love that God has for you, you reflect that back to him. You've done a great job in doing this. I mean, he's, he, he's getting this report from Titus, and it's kind of like, this is wonderful. They're doing exactly what they needed to do. Get this person to a point where they realize their sin. They come back and ask for forgiveness. They make things right as they can, and you as a church minister to them in love, just as God receives us when we wander from him. You do this, and this work of restoration needed to continue. So what happens in verse 14 is there's a sudden shift about what true ministry is like. And he's reflecting that the true gospel ministry is a reflection of Christ. It shows him forth, whether it's in word or in action or in activities. 
And you start with this verse 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always, always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every pay, place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To one we are the savor of death unto death. To the other, the Savior of life and of life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as with sincerity and as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. He's just simply saying this. There is something about being able to preach Christ. There's something triumphant about this. He died on the cross, and and he is one who has been risen from the dead. And there's a power in preaching uh, this individual. And for some, he's the savor of life and the life. They, they, in a sense, they smell this and take it in, and they go, this is sweet. You have others that smell this, and they just turn their nose. You realize that's what gospel ministry will do. There are some that will actually turn to the gospel and love it. Just talking to a person this past week that uh, they uh, were describing their journey over the last year. And that coming to know Christ, they suddenly find things enjoyable that they never found before. And to them, hearing certain things in the Word of God, they've got friends that are like, you go to church now. You read your Bible. Really? They're viewing the message of the gospel in Christ as something that stinks. She's viewing it as, this is something that's changing me. I'm becoming a new person uh, as I read these things and hear these things. Uh, Paul realized his ministry of good news that Jesus Christ was a sweet-smelling to some and unsavory to others. The message was not glorious because of Paul, but because of the message itself. Because Paul's going to describe himself as not very uh, pretty and not very well-spoken and all of these things, and he's going to say, yeah, you're probably right. So it's not Paul who's impressive when he's given the gospel. It's the message itself. And as you go through and begin to talk about uh, what is going on in Paul's gospel ministry, he's just simply saying this, I've got the opportunity to present something new, this new covenant, this new testament, this thing that Jesus did on the cross that gives us salvation and eternal life. I'm able to preach this to people and tell them about this. And this is glorious. But then he all of a sudden kind of slips back, and as you're reading through chapter 3, he starts talking about Moses and him going up on the mountain, and he had to wear a veil when he came down. What does that have to do with the gospel of Christ? Well, what he's talking about is he goes, I'm preaching the new covenant or the new testament. But think about the old covenant when Moses went up to the mountain and stood before God and got these things from God and he comes down and there's this glory that's shining. It's displayed. And this is just the old covenant that couldn't save anyone. It was was indicating what God was like and showing this, but it couldn't save anyone. Paul's going, well, if that was the case when Moses came off the mountain and there's this glory that's there, I get to preach the good news of Jesus Christ that can save, and I get to preach this, how glorious this is in comparison to what Moses' glory was when he came off the mountain. I've got this opportunity to share Christ. He's excited about it, and he loves this opportunity. And so that's why, as you get through here in chapter 3, it's talking about Moses and this new covenant. He's just simply saying it's got the power to transform. Look at the verse 18. 
says this, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from glory to glory even by the Spirit of the Lord. He's just simply saying as you look into the Word of God and you hear more about it, you're beginning to be changed into glory and glory. One day you'll be changed completely. But a person who's got this gospel, there's glory being revealed in the change that's going on in their life. God receives the glory for it. And so this is what's glorious. Now, the question comes, if you have this kind of transformation take place, why doesn't everybody want it? Why does everybody not want this message? Well, as you read through this book, you're going to find Paul on several occasions mentions Satan. I think this is probably more than any other book. I did not check this out, but he's referring to Satan. Because you look at uh, the chapter 4, Paul states this, that we have received this ministry of preaching Christ, verse 1, and have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He goes, I'm not shading anything about the gospel. I mean, there's certain parts you don't want to hear about the gospel. You go, what's that? You're a sinner. Okay? People who are being crafty are ones who don't even talk about sin. Don't want to talk about people being sinners. They're shading the truth. Paul goes, I haven't hidden any of that. And I'm preaching to people's conscience. You go, why are people not uh, hearing it? Well, look at verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, we just talked about, who is the image of God, should shine in them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and and ourselves for your servants, excuse me, your servants for Jesus' sake. He just simply says, reason some people don't get it, they're blind. And there's one who's doing the blinding. Someone quite powerful who's been able to study human character for 6,000 years and manipulate it. Been able to do this and, 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 and have this. And so you say, well, is there any way that these people can get saved? Well, look at verse number six. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He's talking about creation. Just by word. Then hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can a person see God? And the answer is, yes, God can shine in their hearts and they suddenly understand this. You know, sometimes they talk about when people get saved, they're in what? Enlightened. The eyes of their understanding are being turned on. They see these things. They understand these things. And what Paul says is that some people miss this message. Okay, Satan is blinding the eyes. And he does this. Now, Paul recognized his own frailty, but that frailty magnified the power of God that will forever change a believer. He gets done with this, but then he says this, but we have this treasure, verse 7, in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. Okay, I'm just an earthen vessel... sharing the message of the glorious gospel, the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm merely made of clay. I mean, he kind of goes back to the creation story again. And he says, this is what it's like for me. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, not despair. Persecuted, 
but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. But he's just simply saying this, listen, I'm going around and my earthen vessel's getting weaker. It's getting beat up. So it's not me that is doing the transforming when it comes to the message of the gospel. It's not my power, my ability. No, the glorious gospel of Christ is able to work right through my weakness, right through those things that are bad. Now, you might say, and you see at the end of chapter 4 there, that he recognizes this. Look at verse 16. For which cause we faint not. We're not going to give up giving the gospel even though we're being beat up. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction. Now he's going to go through some of the light affliction in in chapters 11 and 12. Shipwrecked, robbed, shipwrecked again, robbed, beaten. I mean, he just chalks these things up. Uh, He calls this light affliction. You go, why is that? Well, he realizes it's but for a moment in comparison to eternity. It's but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which we are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He's got his focus on the things beyond. He's not looking at this as being the end. He's going, the things beyond, they're eternal. I'm working towards there. I'm going to get there. And this right now, temporary. It's not permanent. And so he's able to function in that way. Now, Paul recognizes the affliction in this life are temporary. He wanted to please God to whom he would give account. This is suddenly what he does in chapter 5 is that he begins talking about this building that we have. We're groaning. Uh, we're earnestly desired, verse 2, to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. We look forward to this. We're confident that we know that this is the case. In verse 6, therefore always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with our Lord. But I'm here. So, verse 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That word bad is worthless, so it can mean sinful stuff or stuff that just had no eternal value. So, with the Apostle Paul recognizing, I'm going forward, this is temporary, but I do have to stand before God. It's just not that I go through life and everything's okay and I can do whatever I want. No, I ought to be pleasing God. So what do I do? Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest in God and I trust are manifest in your conscience. He goes, this is my ministry. I go around letting people know about the gospel of Christ. So then you see verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Okay, and I always thought constraining was just kind of you know, I think it was a kid, I always thought of it restraining us. That's how I thought of that term. But it's, it's the idea of compelling us. It is moving us. 
uh, that the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which should live should not live, or henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I mean, he just starts this. If God has died for us and he saved us, then we ought to give our life for this, that the old life has passed away. We have a new life, and you go, what's this new life? This new life is that I have a message of reconciliation, that God is reconciling, bringing peace to this world through his son. He's doing this work, and that we're the ones that have the opportunity to be the ambassador of that message. Each one of us. And so you get to chapter 6 very quickly uh, in this, but uh, Paul does his ministry despite all sorts of difficulties. You can read through some of the different things that go on there, but uh, you see in the end that uh, he does it in such a way that the gospel is not blamed. Okay, he, doesn't, he doesn't want the gospel to be confused or anything like that. He ministers because he wants the gospel to be seen. So you have this whole section that's just what is true ministry of the gospel of Christ like. The excitement that's there for the Apostle Paul. He delights in this. And it's at this point where the Apostle Paul just kind of steps back for a time and he starts giving as we have commands for the Corinthians. Okay, he addresses several different issues. Uh, The one is probably the most famous section out of this, verse 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? I mean, the answer always is none. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God saith, I will dwell in them and walk in them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I mean, Paul has to remind them that you're living in a world that is not uh, going to see things the way you do. But they're going to go, hey, we can compromise. You know, we can get together, and, and, and this is going to be okay, and you can live like us, it'll be all right. We, you know, and, and it goes on like this, and Paul just says, understand, you're the temple of the living God, you're going to be separate from certain things. Don't make the message of gospel or the gospel of Jesus Christ confused by the way that you live. I mean, this is, this is still along the line of him preaching the gospel, but he's giving them this reminder. Paul had written some things in his previous letter that required repentance from some of the members. Paul reminds the people what true repentance looks like. Go down to chapter 7, and you have this passage 
talking about Titus, he comes there and he visits with them and hears about certain things that went on. But verse 8, it says this, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly matter or manner, and that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, the selfsame thing, ye sorrowed after a godly sort. And here's what repentance looks like. I mean, this is kind of the after effects of what, what repentance, a person who really truly has turned from their sin and turned to, to, to Christ. It says this, what carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, what zeal, what, uh, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You go, what are they doing? They're doing whatever they can to stay away from that again. They're upset by it. It sickens them. They attempt to clear their name. They attempt to stay clear of whatever it was before. There is an attempt to make sure that their testimony is not confused and they're staying clear of the things that cause them to do wrong. I mean, that's a picture of what true repentance is like. And so he just kind of gives these commands because, you know, you, you need to separate from the world Okay, you had these different issues. Titus tells me that some of you repented in, in some of these things, and there is a true repentance that's going on. You know, he's giving a commendation there. Which then leads to just another section of instructions on giving. I mean, this is usually the passage that people uh, remember at the end, that God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, but you go, what's going on here? Well, the Apostle Paul is using examples of churches in Macedonia, which is where he's at right then, and he holds up the testimony of Jesus Christ to show the attitude and nature of true giving. These examples were to be a challenge to the church at Corinth to give for the funds for the church at Jerusalem. Throughout the section, Paul emphasizes care in the manner of giving. As you read through it, he's talking about what should be done, your considerations that go on as you give, what's the thought process, that, it's not, that you're giving out of necessity, you're giving out of grace. You know, what, what is grace? Grace is God giving you the power and the ability to do something. And you see this. I mean, you have people that challenge ourselves by this, that sometimes we go to the Old Testament and say, well, I'm only supposed to give a tenth to ministering to other people or God's work. And you're going, if you go by the New Testament standard, it's grace giving. As the Lord gives you strength and power to do and the ability to do it, you give. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. The churches of Macedonia are poor. You people in Corinth, I mean, he almost says this in, you know, in some ways, you're very, very rich and you ought to be giving. You're being rather stingy. You're holding on to this and you're not having a joy in being able to give to meet the needs of other individuals. And so the Apostle Paul gives a lot of different things and that, that the attitude of giving ought to be one of joy. It should happen that way. And as we said, you get to chapter 10 and everything changes very quickly. It's rapid, as we said, it's abrupt. It's like somebody, you know, my sister and I were together over the weekend and we went into a Walmart. Do you realize they're selling LPs again? They've got whole aisles now for the records. 
And, you know, there's some people who are like, oh, you get better sound off of it. I'm just like, okay, whatever. And then my sister's like, yeah, I'd like to listen to, you know, records and that. And I'm like, well, yeah, you get the, you know, that sound. I said, yeah, that's pure sound. Um, but anyhow, but uh, we were talking about it, and I said, yeah, I haven't been there to scratch the record. You know, I, I was notorious as a kid. We had this record player, and half the records were scratched beyond being able to hear what was going on. My mom let me play with this little record player, and we scratched it. Well, that's kind of what you've got going on here, is all of a sudden you have this letter, and it seems like Paul's addressing things, and all of a sudden, a scratch. And you're suddenly someplace else, and the, the tone is completely different. And you go, what is Paul dealing with? This section may have been the real purpose for Paul writing this letter. Okay? I mean, he's got different things that he is dealing with, but this is really the defining thing that he wants to get across because it is the closing, concluding thing he talks about, and he just closes up the letter almost instantaneously. And it's this. There are some in the church that question whether Paul's authority as apostle of Christ was genuine. You know, it's not, they're questioning the fact of whether or not, you know, he's supposed to be the pastor or a missionary, that type of thing. They're, they're just out and out attacking the fact of whether or not he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And they're voicing this around. It seems to be a minority group in the church. Some have suggested that it's perhaps a group of people who were still leaning on some of the Jewish culture and they are thinking Paul was out of the Jewish culture, but he's not emphasizing that in his preaching anymore, and, and so somehow he's really not an apostle of Jesus Christ, and, and so they're, they're questioning these things. And so what the apostle Paul does is that he goes through and very boldly, it's some of the strongest language that he's going to use throughout uh, any of his letters, very strongly makes clear that his authority is not from his own strength and ability. It's not of his own choosing. You start reading in chapter 10, and, and uh, he is talking through the fact that he is looking at himself, and he says, now I, beseech my, or now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, this is what they were saying, he's kind of ugly and not very pretty, and being absent, am bold towards you, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I present uh, with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, okay, some are suggesting you're walking in your sinful flesh, and he says, oh yeah, we are walking in our flesh. I have this body that I'm in. But we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your disobedience is, or your obedience is fulfilled. And he just kind of go, and he just says, okay, it's not my strength. Because he goes, do you look on the uh, verse 7, do you look on things after the outward appearance? I mean, this is what they're judging him by. He doesn't look like what I think an apostle should look like. Okay. You sometimes get disappointed when you see some of the characters in U.S. history and you just kind of go, oh, that's what they look like? I remember going into, if you ever have a chance to go to Philadelphia, go into the room where 
uh, it's um, Constitution Hall. If I remember correctly, I always get them mixed up. Uh, you can go through, and they're all made the same height that they were, so you can walk through them, and they're standing around like they're discussing certain things. And uh, then you have James Monroe. He's like this. In fact, in one of the battles when it was, he was being talked about, uh, somebody said, where is he at? And, they said, and they, they said, oh, he's in the front. And they go, the drummer boy? You know, sometimes you see people, and they're not as impressive as you think they are. And for Paul, these people are just simply going, he doesn't look like what we think an apostle would be. Um, and so what he's dealing with, he's saying, I'm, I, I admit, I'm not doing this out of my own strength. It's not my grand ability and talents. But he has been given authority mainly uh, to build up, not to destroy. He says, I've been giving you the opportunity not to hurt you, but to edify you, to build you up. He does not compare himself to others because his ministry is commended by God, not others. You have this passage at the end there in verse number 18. It says this, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Uh, the idea of measuring yourself by others, you're not wise in verse 12. You know, your, your standard isn't everybody else. Do you realize that? We're not running a race against everybody else. What we're doing in our ministry is that we're going, okay, what's the standard Christ has given us? And he says, that's what I'm, what I'm judging myself by. God's giving me this ministry to the Gentiles to be an apostle to them. And I'm doing what he's told me to do. Paul reminds the church how he treated them when he was with them. He gets chapter 11 and he's talking about uh, the fact of uh, being jealous over them and that he is one who is in the sense of very concerned for them like a parent would be for a child or a husband for his wife. There's a great concern. But what Paul says is that apostleship was not something he abused. In fact, he being an apostle brought him, brought him much difficulty and abuse. Okay? I mean, these people are like, hey, he's got this position, he just goes around, he drives in a Rolls Royce, you know, and everything, you know, he's got his meals taken care of, and he gets out of the vehicle, and someone's got a footrest there for him, and he just kind of walks from place to place, and his meals are taken care of, and whatever. Apostle Paul goes, you really want to know what my ministry's like? Okay. Verse 23. Are these individuals that are making these statements ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. He just simply says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your argument. Okay. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, and deaths often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. We don't have any of those beatings recorded. We do have the beating in Philippi, but that was uh, ministered by Roman officials. They wouldn't have been concerned about uh, making sure they didn't get the 40. These are synagogue beatings that he went through and other things that we've never had uh, recorded. Thrice was I beaten with rods. So we know of one occasion where the Roman officials did this. Once I was stoned. We know about that one. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. You're going, huh? I only know of one. And that one, when Paul's writing this, hadn't even happened yet. So he's at least four times. 
Um, he goes through, I suffered shipwrecked, a night and a day have I been in the deep. So basically he was lost in the water for a day and a night out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, in journeys often, in perils of water, in peril of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirsting, fastings often, in cold nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of the churches. Basically goes, oh, well, you talk about all that. Well, that's just outwardly, outwardly what happens in my body. What's going on in here? The emotions, the concerns, the worries of the church. Um, now, the Apostle Paul notes in chapter 12, now we, we go through this, okay, that he did see heavenly things. You get to chapter 12 and he talks about this guy who goes up to the third heaven and people go, what's the third heaven? You know, it's some, some mystical thing there. Okay. Third heaven is just simply this. Uh, what we would refer to as the atmosphere over our head, blue sky, first heaven. Second heaven, stars in the sky. Third heaven, heaven, where God's at. Okay, so th this is not some mystical thing that he's talking about here that, you know, well, what are these heavens? Uh, and he talks about this man that goes there and saw things that he couldn't, uh, couldn't lawfully speak. And then all of a sudden you realize it's Paul talking about this, about himself. He said, I had the opportunity, if you think you're really great, I had the opportunity to see things in heaven that I can't even talk about. I've been bound and I can't talk about them. And you know what else I have to go along with that? I have this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me that thrice, three times as you read in chapter 12, that he asked for this to be removed from him. And it seems like God let him have this and remain because of this fact. Look at verse 8 of chapter 12. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. So it's a season of prayer. I mean, it's not just, you know, Lord, take this away from me. Uh, what it is is that this is a lengthy thing he prays for. My guess is some prayer and fasting that went along with this. But look at this, verse 9. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God said, I'm leaving this with you, and it allows me to magnify your work, and you're not seen my work's seen. So Paul says this at the end of verse 9, most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. See, what the thorn in the flesh is, nobody knows. You know, some said it was an eye disease, something like that. We have no idea. I mean, it's, I think Paul leaves it general for us to be able to go, you know, well, I don't have that. No, there are certain things that the Lord just leaves in our life, weaknesses that we can't get rid of so that he can be magnified. And so when you go through those times of weakness or your body is failing you and you're going, what's going on? You also ought to just simply think this, God's able to be magnified more clearly through me. I'm not a, a dirty lens mucking things up as far as the vision that's there. What I've got is this, is that now people can clearly see Christ. It's not me. 
as a result of this. And so the Apostle Paul makes sure that these are the case. Now, you get to the suffering might hinder his message. However, Paul gives, uh, has been given signs and wonders to confirm his message. This is what he says. If you really want to question this, I do have the ability to do miracles. I got these confirming signs that I'm an apostle, and I could do those. I don't do them often, but I could do these things, and these are confirmation that I am doing a ministry that is pleasing to God. So it ends with this. The apostle Paul gets done, you get to chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, and what he begins to say is this, is that time is running out. Look at verse 1, it says, this is the third time I'm coming to you, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. You're kind of going, whoa, whoa, this is like courtroom stuff. And what he's saying is, I'm going to come back here, and I am, as an apostle who is a representative of Jesus Christ, I am going to have to come in and make some declarations and take care of some things. I'm able to do this because I'm an apostle. So what's going on here is this, is that time is running out for you to change before I show up. When he comes to Corinth, he would hand out judgment. Make decisions about certain things and say some things directly to his people. So Paul just simply says these, these opposers must repent before he shows up. And, and he gets to the end, he goes, and I'm hoping you do. Not if Paul's delights in, in handing out punishment. No, he doesn't. And so you get to verse 10. It ends with this, according to the power which the Lord hath given to me, the edification and not to destruction, I'm looking forward to coming and just being able to edify you, not having to judge. And then verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you all. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. End of letter. That's it. So it comes to, a, you know, just a stop. So you begin to realize that probably his purpose is, is I'm just up the road. You know, I'm on the road that's going to bring me to where you're at. I'm going to show up. So time for you to consider some of the things I'm saying here and repent. So that makes an interesting letter. But in the midst of this, you find it very personable because you can relate to some of these things. Paul's defending his ministry, but you're recognizing, okay, your strength is made perfect in weakness. You're able to display yourself when I'm not proud, strong, you're able to do this. And so it's a great book, a lot of uh, different things to address uh, throughout it, but uh, hopefully as you look through it, you go, oh yeah, that's where that's at. And uh, go back and take a look at some of these things uh, in the next week and just go, okay, these are encouraging passages in the midst of Paul having to defend what the true gospel ministry is like. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage of uh, Scripture, this portion of Scripture is given. There are so many different things given for our encouragement. In the middle of Paul, in the greatest, one of the greatest uh, passages of distress that he has, it's obvious that he's disturbed, discouraged uh, by some things that are going on, but yet in that we have the opening of what uh, your servants are like, that they're people just like us, made of flesh, earthen vessels. And when we're frustrated that we think that we aren't capable of doing anything, may we recognize the fact that's the times where you can do great things through us that you can be seen. So may we realize the things we go through are temporary, 
that we have opportunity to magnify Christ in a short period of time, so we ought to be persuading men, women, lifting up Christ, talking of him, showing him forth in the time that we have. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this book. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.